Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this week's episode, we're talking to David Sanders, CTSI Lead Officer for Hallmarking, and Noel Hunter, who is Chair of the British Hallmarking Council as well as Chair of CTSI's board. Hallmarking in the UK dates back centuries. It's about to celebrate its 700th anniversary and is considered by many to be the oldest form of consumer protection. The hallmarks stamped on precious metals are a powerful physical reminder that when consumers make a purchase, they have a right to know that they are getting what they pay for. In its long history, hallmarking has come on leaps and bounds in terms of the technology employed by assay offices, and there have also been significant changes in the way precious metal items, particularly jewellery, are bought and sold. The emergence of online retail has added fresh challenges to hallmarking enforcement, with about £50 million of fraudulent goods in the category coming onto the market every year. David and Noel address these challenges, as well as talking about the Touchstone Award, an initiative to recognise the hard work and success of those working in hallmarking and consumer protection enforcement. David began by taking us through the lead officer role. My name is David Sanders. I am currently lead officer for hallmarking for the Chartered Trading Standards Institute. All the lead officers are considered to be an expert in a given field, and they're a source of reference for other trading standards officers, institute members around the country who are in doubt about a particular piece of legislation, have someone to turn to for clarification. I was in trading standards before it was called trading standards. I was a weights and measures inspector from the 60s onwards. And we changed the name in 1974 to reflect the wider range of duties that we were then performing. So I've been trading standards officer for the whole time that that term was current until I retired some eight years ago. Uh, When I retired, I joined a number of organisations out of interest, one of which was the British Hallmarking Council. And at that time, about that time, the the previous lead officer for hallmarking uh, gave up the job and I thought it would be good to have a link between the Hallmarking Council and the Trading Standards Institute. Um, so I, I, I actually applied for the job, and uh, and I've been doing it ever since. I'm uh, Noel Hunter, and uh, I chair the British Hallmarking Council, which is a uh, uh, statutory uh, body with responsibility of the Secretary of State. I also chair the uh, board of the uh, Chartered Trading Standards Institute, and that really stems from my background as a, a trading standards officer and uh, my involvement with the profession over many years. How did you come into a career in trading standards initially, Noel? I guess as most people start their careers, almost by accident. But uh, an opportunity to look at a range of professional services and I was given the opportunity at that point to look at what was then the Weights and Measures Service. And uh, uh, I particularly found the engagement with both consumers and businesses and people in general uh, the exciting part of that service as opposed to some of the other services I might have chosen uh, without wishing to uh, derogate those. And what about hallmarking? Did you have a particular interest in that to begin with? Only peripherally. Interestingly, my father uh, ran a jeweller's shop for a number of years and and was by trade a uh, clockmaker and watchmaker. So I I have that uh, in my genes, as it were, but it's not something that uh, uh, focused my attention on being involved with the British Hallmarking Council at all. 
So what about when you started working in trading standards? Did it become more of an interest then? It wasn't something that was central to my interest at that particular time. When, when I was involved with enforcement, and this uh, tends to be the case now, it was an issue of uh, priorities at the time, and uh, the priorities varied uh, considerably. And um, so although hallmarking was one of those, it, it wasn't central to my, my interest in a, in a sense. One of the things that um, brought me to the British Hallmarking Council was getting involved in originally with the Birmingham Assay Office. I was uh, appointed as a, a guardian and then a warden there some years ago. And it was from that particular engagement uh, and my involvement with that particular assay office that uh, I became uh, involved in the British Hallmarking Council and was appointed its chairman. David, could you give us a brief overview of what metals hallmarking applies to? It covers gold, silver, palladium and platinum. But of course other uh, precious items can be associated with that, with those things. It, you know, we do come across cases where uh, while we may be doing a hallmarking inquiry uh, on a, a ring or a necklace or something, we sometimes find uh, that the stones are misdescribed. But it, it would it's still an offence, even though it's not an offence under the Hallmarking Act. So it doesn't preclude us having a wider remit. And what does a hallmark consist of? Yes, and not all of them appear on all items, but they can be five elements, which are a sponsor's mark, which is uh, mostly... That is actually the maker's mark. There's a traditional fineness symbol, which is used in cases like sterling silver or Britannia silver, gold, palladium, platinum. And then there's what is now called a millesimal fineness mark um but it's it it it's a number which indicates parts per thousand of the uh, precious metal in, in the total amount because they are usually alloys they're not 100 percent pure i mean gold i don't think you ever get 100 percent pure because it's very soft so you have a there are standards and and a mark will indicate the fineness of that particular item. Then there's the assay office mark, which will tell you which of the four assay offices um, the hallmark was applied at, and there are four. At the moment, they are in London and Birmingham and Sheffield and Edinburgh, and they have a panther and an anchor and a rose and a castle, depending on which one of those it is. So, And then there is an optional mark, which is a date letter mark, which which used to be more important. Um, but sometimes you don't see a date mark at all now. And obviously the smaller the item of jewellery, the more difficult it is to get a meaningful mark applied to it. However, it is, if you're going to use an expression like gold, that you cannot apply gold to an item unless it is either below the minimum weight to be exempt or if it is above that, it has to have the hallmark. What about older items which predate the present hallmarking system? Is there a requirement for them to be hallmarked according to today's standard if they come onto the market? They're normally tankards, plates, articles you might find in guild halls or churches or things. They're not so much jewellery. Uh, and not to say that there isn't ancient jewellery about them. Um, you can still get Egyptian jewellery. But if the things that we see that come up at um, auctions and things like that tend to be plate and, and goblets and, and that sort of thing. And then usually only, and more commonly, 
two, three, four hundred years old. Uh, I, I personally have never seen. I mean, hallmarking in this country goes back to 13th century. I've never seen anywhere um, a hallmarked item that old. And it's the job of an assay office to ensure an item being manufactured and sold today has the correct hallmark. It is always the assay office. That's their the prime purpose is if a, a jeweller makes items of those four metals and wants to sell them, they are obliged to, to get them assayed, which guarantees they are of that quality, and then the hallmark is applied to the item so that they can apply the description and put it on the market. And and, and only the hallmark, only the assay offices assay the quality of the precious metal and then mark it. Uh, and and this, there are very few countries in the, in the world, actually, that have the system that we've got. It is, you know, the, the consumer in the UK is better protected than many in that it is a compulsory system and has been for centuries. Noel, hallmarking's got a long and illustrious history. In many ways, it's the start of what we know today as trading standards, isn't it? Many would say it's uh, almost the oldest form of, of consumer protection in, in terms of its pedigree in the UK. It's about to celebrate its 700th anniversary in a few years' time, so it's been going for some considerable time. So uh, that's an indication uh, of the uh, importance of hallmarking, the importance of regulation. Uh, to the consumer. Um, That was identified in the early 1300s, so uh, clearly it's a matter which uh, continues to uh, be troublesome for consumers and a matter which we uh, focus keen attention on. So obviously in that 700 years there have been uh, significant changes to how hallmarking is enforced. Well I I think there have been a number of changes. Uh, I think the, uh, the issue of uh, the technology which uh, governs hallmarking is is one of them, but I, I think the trade itself has changed enormously as well. And let me mention the technology. Of course, yes, uh, originally the touchstone and uh, and uh, assaying were, were were central to all this, and of course, um, assaying remains a central part of it. But um, X-ray technology has now been used to uh, assess the uh, standard of gold and silver and other precious metals as well. The industry itself has changed quite dramatically, and I think this really reflects the the market place generally in the UK. I think you'll be well aware that um, now we're heading towards about 30% of retail transactions being on the internet. So global trade and internet trade is is a matter which has focused the attention of the British Hallmarking Council over recent time. And uh, it obviously presents a quite different enforcement challenge, uh, as my colleagues within the Trading Standards Service know only too well. Uh, We did a survey recently um, over a 10-day period on the um, internet and uh, discovered that um, £1.4 million worth of items over that 10-day ten, uh, ten period were uh, suspected fake or were not hallmarked or, or had misdescriptions associated with them. So a huge volume uh, of activity over a, a small period of time. If you extrapolate across that across a year, you, you'll quickly see it's about £50 million worth of fraud on the internet, which we've identified at current levels of activity. David, obviously the technology used by assay officers has changed during that time as well. Could you tell us about some of the techniques being used today? A basic way of identifying the fineness of gold, for example, um, it does take years of experience to know you're rubbing a stone on the metal and taking a very, very small amount 
off the metal leaves a trace on the stone and that skilled assay officers can tell by that trace whether it's they're fairly happy it's right or or it's not um if they think it is not right then they have to do uh, more testing which is destructive testing and in the old days that would use acids and things like that um to dissolve the metal and do a, a proper chemical analysis um nowadays that uh, they have uh, like an x-ray machine uh, xrf machine um and there there are the trade can use handheld ones which are capable of of giving you a result within say 1% but the assay officers machines are far more accurate than that and um in and, and they can tell very accurately with a non-destructive test by x-raying the material in front of them and they can tell you um yes this is what it says or no it isn't what it says yeah, and clearly if if the jewel has gone to uh, you know, uh, the, the, there is a, a large element of, of skill reflected in the price of the item. Uh, you know, when you if you're selling gold and silver um, for the cash value, you 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 may have paid an awful lot for a piece of jewellery that is a, a work of art, but you'll only get the value of the base of the metal when you you, you sell it. So, if somebody's gone to a lot of trouble to put artistic element into an item, they don't want to see that destroyed by a, you know a destructive test at the assay office. So, it, they have to do it um, as non-destructive testing as as far as possible. And the XRF machine is actually one of the best. The, the, I think it's probably either the best way of of doing that at the moment. Noel, do you know what proportion of UK jewellery sales are made online? It's a relatively small figure in terms of the overall market, but nevertheless, um, it's a growing figure and it's one which um, is not a complete picture at this stage. This was very much a snapshot uh, of the situation. Let me just tell you about the industry itself, because the industry um, is a significant industry in the UK. It uh, it actually... uh, turns over about eight eight and a half billion pounds a year so it's not without significance and it employs about 60,000 people so in terms of what we're trying to do here which uh, the British Oil Market Council is is very much focused on is to try and ensure uh, those legitimate businesses here in the UK and elsewhere have a a fair marketplace and uh, the introduction of global trading the internet and uh, the increasing volume of trade now going on through social media uh, creates a real challenge for for, for uh, enforcement and a real challenge the British Hallmarking Council in time to maintain the integrity of the marketplace. And David, could you tell us a bit about how international and online sales apply to hallmarking law? It is a, actually a fact that uh, 90, 92, 93% of the jewellery in the world is made outside the UK. Um, a huge amount, like 25% or so, it comes from in India or the Indian subcontinent, and probably fifty percent of it comes from China. Probably it's labour costs and and things like that. So uh, the chances are that much of it, uh, the jewellery on sale, is imported. Now it may be imported by UK companies, and they um, get it hallmarked when it comes into the country. Um, some of the assay offices. Uh, make that an easier process by having a sub-office at the point where the jewellery comes in. For instance, the London Assay Office has a sub-office within the Brinks Mat security area at Heathrow Airport. 
so um, the jewellery can be flown in, uh, it can be hallmarked on premises and distributed um, by the, the courier services that's bringing it in. Um, so that, that simplifies matters. And uh, a new venture of uh, about four years ago was Birmingham Assay Office actually opened a sub-office in Mumbai, right in, in one of the centres of the Indian jewellery trade. Um, so they have Birmingham Assay Office staff working in a secure office uh, in Mumbai, um, providing a hallmarking facility for jewellery heading for the UK, actually, uh, where it's made. Noel, in terms of overseas sales, do you anticipate Brexit having any impact on the industry? Well, Brexit is going to change the landscape without question. And um, I think like most industries, we're, we're not entirely sure quite how at the moment. This will very much hinge on the negotiations the UK government are now uh, engaged in with uh, uh, with the European Union and, of course, uh, some of the trade deals that may be done with other nations around the world as well. There is uh, currently a convention involving the uh, countries that do hallmark and uh, there are a long list of countries around the world that do. There is a convention in representing those countries that um, provides for mutual recognition, and uh, we, we think that will continue. Uh, the issue may well be about how the relationship with other European countries uh, continues and what, the, uh, uh, what a mutual recognition will, will still apply in, in circumstances where we are uh, involved in trade deals with uh, the rest of Europe. David, do you have any idea of the current levels of fraud or malpractice when it comes to precious metal items on the market today? I am not a working trading standards officer, and therefore I am not, as a matter of course, inspecting the jewellery on the market. However, um, I have been involved for seven years or so. The Touchstone Award, which rewards trading standards officers for doing outstanding work in hallmarking, um, and it mostly concerns uh, the illegal trade of uh, unhallmarked or misdescribed jewellery, so that I am very aware that there is a huge amount uh, on the marketplace. And in fact, the uh, British Hallmarking Council commissioned a private investigator to run a computer programme night and day for about a week with specific, uh, specific criteria to look at gold items that were above the minimum weight, so they had to be marked, uh, and then you know, follow up on that when we identify UK sellers, not, not foreign sellers, UK sellers who were advertising gold and silver that had to be hallmarked. And we think that uh, this is a very conservative survey of UK sellers, that, we, we, they, that it's worth well over... A million pounds a year, uh, and if you take out, we weren't looking at foreign companies because enforcement is, is difficult when it's a cross-border thing. So, it is a huge problem. And in the last year, um, two of the applicants for the Touchstone Award have done a hallmarking act, which is more fraud than anything else. Although there were hallmarking charges, uh, it involved gold that wasn't of the standard. It was actually made in this country, but it was adulterated. It was um, a good quality gold wrapped round poor quality gold, but described as on the outer. 
as the goal on the outside. Um, that was a, like a three-year investigation that resulted in one person getting a seven-year prison sentence. And, and another, uh, the, the actual winners of the Touchstone Award had done investigations into golden jewellery, uh, jewellery um, with fake descriptions, and there were custodial sentences uh, there as well. And this was just... Um, these are people who are trading in this country. Now, Noel, you're, you're chairman of the British Hallmarking Council. Could you tell us a bit more about it and what its remit is? Well, the two central areas of our uh, interests as a, a council are to make sure that, of course, our assay offices in the UK operate well and uh, legitimately and effectively, and uh, and that is something we can uh, be assured of, they do. Um, we do that work in conjunction with the uh, Queen's Assay Master, who uh, operates out of the Royal Mint, so it's a very high level of scrutiny that goes on to make sure the UK market is legitimate and consumers get what they ask for. Um, in, in terms of that uh, more difficult area of enforcement, and it, uh, I'm not saying there's no problems within the UK itself, indeed, uh, in, in recent times there have been quite a number of serious fraud cases involving jewellery, but the uh, burgeoning problem is, is actually uh, the internet, and so we are now focused on what we can do about that. And um, we, we are looking to set up a project across the UK with uh, a focus on internet trading to try and ensure that uh, the uh, various organisations that sell into the UK and through the UK via the internet uh, are in tune with what we're trying to achieve, uh, in other words, fair, a fair deal for the consumer and, of course, fairness for legitimate traders as well. I know that one of the things the British Hallmarking Council is heavily involved with is the Touchstone Award, which David's already mentioned. Yes, the, uh, the Touchstone Award was uh, developed um, eight years ago and uh, it was our colleague Robert Grice, who was recently uh, given an honour in the New Year's Honours list, which I was delighted to see, uh, who had, uh, was the inspiration for that. And uh, the award was really focused on trying to ensure that the trading standards community, who are under siege in terms of resources at the moment, uh, didn't lose sight of the important role that uh, they have in relation to hallmarking enforcement. So it sought to reward good practice. And uh, I, I frequently said this is the, the best award in local government. And uh, I sincerely believe that. The, uh, the award, uh, if I may touch on that for a moment, is a uh, wonderful silver salver, which is presented worth many thousands of pounds, which is presented at the uh, annual symposium of uh, CTSI, in June each year and uh, there is then a, an opportunity to uh, visit Goldsmiths Hall, a, a remarkable piece of uh, historical architecture and also the centre of the, the, the hallmarking industry in many respects. It was where uh, hallmarking originated. Um, there's a visit there and uh, a training session and an opportunity again uh, to see hallmarking at its uh, uh, at its uh, at the sharp end, so a, a very important award, which um, we hope will attract this year again quite a number of applications. We had five very strong applications last year, two of which involved uh, very serious prosecutions. Uh, one of them leading to um, long terms of imprisonment, which indicates that uh, fraud is alive and well in this industry, and that's why it's so important that as a, a council we give it the attention it deserves. If somebody wants to put a colleague forward for the Touchstone Award, how can they do that? 
if they go onto the uh, the British Hallmarking Council website, it uh, it's all on there. So uh, yes, and if they have any doubts about it, then uh, please contact me. I'm pretty well known in the service. I'm very happy to be contacted, or the uh, the institute office itself will be able to help as well. The deadline for applications is the uh, 24th of April uh, this year, and uh, the application forms can be found on the British Hallmarking Council website. How would you respond to the argument that jewellery is a luxury item, which perhaps in terms of the allocation of resources available isn't a priority for most people? Uh, a lot of people do buy jewellery to mark special occasions. It's a it's a wedding, it's an anniversary, it's a, a christening or whatever. So uh, very ordinary people uh, buy jewellery and, and the vast majority of jewellery is bought by uh, people on uh, average or low incomes and, uh, and therefore uh, they need protection. The, the reason they need protection, of course, is that those people, um, like you and I, uh, can't really judge by looking at a product whether it's uh, what it says it is. Uh, somebody once said, all that glisters is not gold. And, uh, and so uh, it is a very difficult product to judge. It's sold to ordinary people, uh, and, and uh, therefore those people need protection. And that's why I think uh, hallmarking has had such a long history and has been in place for so many years. Let's not assume that uh, jewellery is only for the rich and uh, it's therefore um, a luxury market. It is not. Uh, a lot of jewellery goes to very ordinary people, so don't ignore it. Don't ignore that area of, of uh, trade. Also, uh, I would also say that um, colleagues around the country have found some serious frauds uh, over over the last year or so, and, and so fraud is still out there. Training standards officers know what they're doing, know what they're looking for, and they know that if product is being sold at a reduced price, looking like a bargain that it is not, then uh, it's worth focusing in on that. So I think most trading standards uh, authorities now are very much into risk assessment. They will be focused on where risk lies. They'll be doing their homework before they go out and uh, and check on premises. And uh, uh, they, they will pull all the evidence together uh, from a variety of sources. The data that exists uh, on the internet... Uh, the information that uh, may exist in their local uh, assay office and uh, and also some of the uh, good work that's been done by their colleagues elsewhere. We all learn from each other. And David, what do you think is the main consumer protection justification for hallmarking? I think there's pro- probably a valid argument to saying after a house and a car, uh, a jewellery might be the most expensive item you buy. Uh, something like a wedding ring or engagement ring or something. It, it may well be. If you get rich later on, that's that's different. But, um, yeah, it is an expensive... And I am aware of cases through the Touchstone Award where um, people who have bought online, and this is not gold and silver, this is um, precious, this is gemstones and things like that, who who have bought, uh, say, engagement rings that, that seem... Uh, you know the old adage: if it's if it seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. But they've bought engagement rings described uh, as precious stones, and they haven't been. And you know, if if they knew the trade, they would know instantly. You can't possibly get that stone for that price. Um, but when one authority who did a big survey on that and went tried to find the, the customers. Um, you know, if you if you had bought an engagement ring for your then wife, you would be. You know, many of them were ashamed to admit they'd been ripped off. They didn't actually want to get further involved. And in like, um, it, you know, it's an embarrassing situation. It's one of several, but 
Um, yeah, if you are caught because you don't really understand the market, you don't realistically know what the prices should be, um, you're a, a sitting duck. So it's it's one of those. It's just another area where the more publicity that you can give to the consumer, the better able they are to protect themselves. How's hallmarking enforcement responded to cuts? Has has the decrease in resources led to new approaches? Well, I think that's right. I mean, there's uh, enforcement has got smarter. It's it's got it's adapted to uh, the way in which um, the trade operates. Clearly, reducing resources has meant uh, new ideas have had to come to the fore. That's entirely good. You know, it's uh, it's been uh, regenerative in, in in terms of the trading standards community. Having said that, of course, the uh, resource challenges are huge and and are meaning that certain areas are not being covered as they used to be. But certainly it's brought innovation and uh, and the service needs to be commended for the innovation it's brought to that. And uh, that's particularly true in, in the way it's dealing with some of the problems I've referred to uh, on the internet and uh, uh, cross-border. And presumably tightening resources have created a greater need to work alongside other organisations as well. Yeah, what, what the uh, BHC has a, a very good point, and, and, and the BHC uh, has been very much engaged in that. We have relied on information from HMRC, to, for example, to, to track where product is coming in and the volume of that product. So that's been an important relationship. The BHC itself has an enforcement responsibility, so uh, we are looking at how we can actually uh, supplement the efforts of, uh, of the trading sands community in, in, in that regard. Uh, we have been working very closely with the National Association of Jewellers and uh, I have regular meetings with their chief executive, and uh, uh, they are, in fact, indeed involved as partners in the Touchstone Award. So uh, they, they are very committed to uh, working closely with the, the trading sands community. And I would say that, of course, the asset officers themselves are very important players in this. They work on a hands-on basis with local trading standards officers. Uh, in fact, uh, one good example is in the last few months, um, our colleagues in Scotland, um, many of the local authorities in Scotland, have worked very closely with the uh, Scottish Assay Office in Edinburgh, um, who have trained them in uh, in some of the finer detail of uh, what they should be looking for, and uh, have also supported them in in testing product and uh, and giving opinions. So uh, it's a very important relationship. Uh, I think uh, there's no area of enforcement at the moment works well if it's done in isolation. It needs to be a partnership. Well, finally, David, do you have any thoughts on how the work of trading standards in this area can be more effective? I think one of the problems, you don't get complaints about hallmarking or fraud in the jewellery trade until you start giving that area publicity. Um, Back in the early days of the Touchstone Award, in one authority, uh, did some work and applied. They they said uh, until... Um, you know, they, they were proactive, went into the marketplace and they found problems and they gave publicity to the problem and they then got 70 complaints from the public uh, actually about the same trader and that people don't realise, uh, probably never ever realise that they've been ripped off uh, until they're uh, forced to apply their mind to it and they think, oh, hang on. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it, it goes under the radar. So it, it does actually require uh, people to be a bit proactive. Um, I'm pleased to say that they are far more proactive, trading standards is more proactive in this area than it was. The assay offices are keen to help, 
It's difficult if you're... Uh, I mean, there are only the four, and, and some training standards departments are, are a long way away from an assay office. Uh, um, but they will go out. Um, they, they've, been, they've been over to Northern Ireland helping TSOs over there do, do shop inspections, pursue lines of inquiry or whatever. They, I mean, clearly, it, it, not, it affects their income. Because if jewelers are losing money, um, you know they're not they're not getting the work in in because of the, the unfair competition. In, and there are certain certain brands so that um, are particularly attractive to younger people that are heavily targeted by counterfeiters because they know it's a big market and and they know people always like you know to get a bargain. The problem is they're not getting a bargain. And that's it for another episode. Thanks to David Sanders and Noel Hunter for talking to us. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon with more from the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.